Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, and the epistle is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Brethren, be imitators of me, and mark those who walk after the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is ruin. Their God is the belly. Their glory is in their shame. They mind the things of earth. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will fashion the body of our lowliness, conforming it to the body of his glory, by exerting the power by which he is also able to subject all things to himself. So then, my brethren, beloved, and long for my joy and my crown, stand fast thus in the Lord, beloved. I entreat Evodia, and I exhort Synthike to be of one mind in the Lord. And I beseech thee also, my loyal comrade, help them. For they have toiled with me in the gospel, as have Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. At that time, as Jesus was speaking to the crowds, behold, a ruler came up and worshipped him, saying, Lord, my daughter has just now died, but come and lay thy hand upon her, and she will return to life. And Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. Now a woman who for twelve years had been suffering from hemorrhage came up behind him and touched the tassel of his cloak, saying to herself, If I touch but his cloak, I shall be saved. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Take courage, daughter, thy faith has saved thee. And the woman was restored to health from that moment. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a din, he said, Be gone, the girl is asleep, not dead. And they laughed him to scorn. But when the crowd had been put out, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this spread throughout all the district. So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. These are words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, there are no icebergs in equatorial waters. At the poles north and south, there are mountains of ice, and some of these break off into big icebergs that slowly float and make their way to equatorial waters. And in the course of their travels, these icebergs diminish in size and eventually melt away altogether. In communist Russia, the church was persecuted by atheist leaders who feared revolution from believing citizens, and though they destroyed some churches, they preserved some of the more beautiful and magnificent cathedrals as museums. 
as historical monuments. People could point to these as their churches, but they were really not churches. Externally, they retained their appearance, but internally, they were now converted into museums, memories and relics of the past. Today, we have in the Catholic Church a similar phenomenon where the leaders are destroying vestiges of the faith and its practice, keeping the externals fearing a wholesale revolution by those who do not realize that the church is melting away in an age of apostasy. They point to the church as existing, and yet there are convents that are empty, seminaries that no longer function, monasteries that are being sold, and yet uh, it seems that there's nothing really different from what it used to be. It's not that doctrines are denied. It's now that they are being ignored. Take, for example, funeral masses. Remember, in days past, the priest wore black vestments to remind us that we all face that fearsome moment that we talked about last Sunday um, uh, on the Feast of All Saints, that death, is inevitable, and at the moment of death, we are judged for all eternity. The most fearsome moment of our life, where eternity hangs in the balance of that judgment of God, that as a person has lived, so he will die. He'll be judged accordingly. And so the church wore black vestments to remind us of that eventuality that we should be prepared for. Not in a gay spirit, but in a spirit of sober realization that it's our sins that can condemn us to hell. And therefore, we ought to live a life of sober penance and prayer and watchfulness that we grow in the image and likeness of Christ through his grace and our cooperation. But today, funeral masses see priests wearing white vestments. And it's an occasion of celebration and joy because... As everyone is told and believes that this soul has gone to heaven. Everybody, it seems, goes to heaven today. And the fearsome topic of hell is shoved under the carpet. Well, they say there's a hell, but nobody goes there. So it's sort of uh, out of business. It's a relic, a museum piece that people talk about but no longer fear. And with that lack of fear of hell comes the celebration of life in any form, even sinfully. People live together, and they do not think it out of order because it's acceptable publicly. And God is merciful, and as a person believes in his conscience, so he judges himself as to be sinless because it is acceptable. It's now legal. Abortion, euthanasia will come. And all the things that we once condemned are going to be now acceptable and practiced. Take, for example, purgatory. It is no longer being taught today. It's not being denied as is limbo, but purgatory is simply being ignored. And so uh, we see that these vestiges of the past are slowly disappearing. 
They're there, but no longer to the degree they once were. And so when we come to purgatory today, who prays for the souls in purgatory? If everyone goes to heaven, then these souls departed no longer need our prayers, our suffrages, our concern to release them from this place of purification, which we call purgatory. And it so happens in our studies, we are at this particular lesson today, 79, uh, as we come to the final uh, topics of the Apostles' Creed, the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And what about purgatory? The question is, who are punished in purgatory? Well, that word punished, of course, needs to be examined more carefully. Rather, it should be who are purified in purgatory. All suffering is a punishment to some degree or other. It's uh, distasteful. It is um, painful. And we see it as a form of punishment, whether it comes in the form of financial punishment or health punishment or mental punishment. It's a pain, it's a, it's a difficulty that we want to avoid or be rid of. And so when we ask the question, it's a little prejudicial to say who are punished or uh, who are suffering in purgatory, though they do. Nevertheless, it's a purification process, not a destructive process, as punishment can be. Those are punished for a time in purgatory who die in the state of grace. They die in the state of grace. They are still alive in Christ with the same life that Christ gave them in baptism. It's been renewed and restored many times perhaps in life through confession, through the sacrament of forgiveness, and sins are gone as long as the person intends never to commit them again. is sorry for them. It makes a firm purpose of amendment. No guarantee given, but at least the effort to make that they will amend their lives. And God, in his mercy, forgives these sins and restores them to grace. And the purpose, of course, is to die in the state of grace. More so, more so for us who try more than just enough, but to grow in grace and to, draw, to die in the state of exaltation with the fullness of that promise and that destiny that Christ has given to us that he will raise us up on the last day and he will share his heavenly kingdom with us who are united with him as co-heirs of Christ in his grace. So those who die in the state of grace are assured this inheritance. However, because of the dual situation of sin, of the guilt and the penalty, the guilt being taken away but the penalty remaining to restore what is stolen, to restore the good name of one who has been offended, to put back in order through justice what has been destroyed by sin. And though guilt is taken away, the restoration still remains. And that is what we do by amending our lives and doing penance and uh, correcting any errors by a positive act. It's not enough to go to confession, but you must also make amends for whatever sins or wrongs that have been done as a result of these sins. So it's the result then of sin that we must do penance and punishment in purgatory is that temporal punishment that remains to be satisfied after the forgiveness of sins has been satisfied by the grace of Christ. 
So even those who are guilty of venial sin uh, or have not fully satisfied for the temporal punishments due to their sins are purified or are punished, as we say, in purgatory. Purgatory is a middle state where souls destined for heaven are detained and purified. So it's like buying a new car. The seller sees that the car is washed and polished and then presented to the buyer who drives it away in a beautiful state. So too, those who go to heaven have to be washed and purified, though they are sold into the inheritance of Christ, they still have to be uh, detailed, as they say, uh, perfected, so that there is no blemish, no fault, no um, mechanical dysfunctioning in the process of this transaction. Now, souls in purgatory cannot help themselves. We don't know why this is, but it's because, really, that the time of meriting is over. It's only in our lifetime on this earth that we can merit. Not in heaven, not in purgatory, but only in this life. So the church militant that we belong to at this present time is a time of gathering in all that we can for that crown that will be transformed into our glory for all eternity. Once we've gathered all the material, that's what will be used for the functioning of that glory that will be ours and it cannot be added to after this life is over. But the souls in purgatory can be helped by the faithful on earth. So we can even, with our meritorious actions for ourselves, help them by offering of our prayers, our sufferings, our almsgiving, our good deeds for the repose of the souls in purgatory by our prayers and other good works. Now in some places, and this is in former times, unfortunately, at 7 8 or 9 o'clock at night, the church bells sound to admonish the faithful to pray for the souls in purgatory. Now, this is in Catholic countries and perhaps in former times. And it was a beautiful thought when you heard the church bell ring before you go to bed at night to remember the souls who are dead and who ask for your prayers, that someday you too will join them and the toll of the bell will be praying, uh, will be asking for prayers for you. This hour is in commemoration of Christ's prayer in the garden. See how we were totally united with Christ in even the functions of the day, let alone the year in the liturgical uh, cycle. We should then pray the Requiem Eternum. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Belief in the utility of praying for the dead automatically includes belief in the existence of purgatory. If there were no purgatory, it would be useless to pray for the dead because saints in heaven need no help and those in hell are beyond aid. So use your common sense. Uh, Scripture tells us that nothing defiled can get into heaven. And our Lord says, you will not be released from prison until you've paid the last farthing. Just the minutest part of a cent has been satisfied before you're let out. So we see that there is a strictness and a justice required uh, for the perfection of that excellence that Christ says, be you perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are not idle words. 
And yet we do not strive to that kind of excellence because of the mediocrity of the world in which we live. And yet our church reminds us this is what's expected of us and until we achieve it in purgatory, we will be detailed and we will perfect that which is remaining that stands against us until we can go into heaven totally perfect and purified. And we can be sure that there will be no more purgatory after the general judgment because the reason for its existence will have passed away. There's a time lag. Those who died go to purgatory, but eventually purgatory will, will be emptied because all these souls who have satisfied what is required of them will go into heaven and purgatory will no longer exist. What about limbo? We leave that to the mercy of God since the church has not declared definitively about the outcome of limbo, whether these souls will remain there in a natural state or whether God will give them an opportunity to make a choice for or against. So better in limbo than in hell, of course, but better in heaven than in limbo. So we leave that as speculative theology as an open question, but we do believe in limbo. Purgatory is a place of temporary punishment for those who have died in venial sin or who have not fully satisfied God's justice for mortal sins already forgiven. A boy with a stone deliberately breaks a window pane. This is a venial sin punishable in purgatory. Why? It's a, it's a disorder. It's not a big one. There's a smallness of matter, but this, the window has to be replaced, the price has to be paid, <clears throat> the time taken and effort made, uh, and this is disorder that is unnecessary because of some wayward little child who throws a stone deliberately and breaks a window. Some argue that God is a good God and will not punish such slight sins with the pains of purgatory. Now, those of you who remember Our Lady at Fatima said that Francisco, one of the three children, would be in purgatory to the end of the world. See, how can this little child suffer purgatory if that is true, truly reported? Uh, and yet it makes us soberly realize that we should not take offenses, slight as they may be, as if they uh, don't exist or they're uh, of, no, of no consequence. We must remember, nevertheless, that the judgments of God are different from those of men, as his holiness is far above human holiness. For he says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. In another place he says, the justice of man does not work the justice of God. God is merciful, he is patient, he wills not the death of a sinner, but that he be converted. We're quick with our actions, our judgments, our re re uh, reactions to uh, offenses against us. We don't forgive, we hold it uh, as a grudge or we retaliate. And this is justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But that's human justice. God's justice is merciful, but it is true and does require um, a fitting re-evaluation uh, re or restoration of what is out of order. So we must put our lives in order to a perfection of being another Christ. And we should strive for that with that kind of intensity, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, for the kingdom of God. So we're really pipers, as we say. Uh, we are mediocre because we have very few standards to measure against, except that of Christ, and we don't do that very much since we bring him down to our level rather than rise to his. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Let us make our thoughts then God's thoughts. And 
your ways are not my ways. Then let us make our ways his ways. And that is the conversion. That is the effort of the spiritual life to become godlike. And it takes a lot of grace and a lot of cooperation and a lot of purification. For the heart of man is inclined to evil from his youth, tasting of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as we do. A man commits a cruel murder. This is a mortal sin, which, unrepented and unconfessed, will send him to hell. Murder is not a slight thing. We become so desensitized to it because of its frequency, its violence, that we take it for granted. And we excuse those who are on death's row. They die of old age rather than being um, executed. Uh, the mercy of man is turned around. And the justice of man is enforced in a different way uh, to a severity or a prejudice that is uneven in society. But God is just and he will send a soul to hell forever for a violent, serious sin such as deliberate murder, unrepented and unconfessed. The man repents, confesses, and obtains absolution for his sins. The guilt is therefore removed. You might say sin is like a fire in a house. You burn the house, but you put the fire out. The fire is no longer burning the rest of the house. So you might say it's like the guilt that has been taken away. Well, what about the burned, charred wood? That has to be replaced, restored, repainted. And we sometimes live in burned houses. The fire is out, but we haven't done the restoration. We haven't put our lives back in order. We haven't put the situation corrected. And this is where we have to do it in purgatory if we don't do it in this life. So two things, the guilt and the punishment. The guilt can be taken away, the punishment remaining, and that is what we suffer in purgatory or in this life. But the justice requires that he make up for the evil he has done. This atonement takes place in purgatory unless he makes full satisfaction before death, and we can do so easily in our lifetime, much more easily by our prayers, by our good works, by our almsgivings, by our fastings. All of these means of purification we willingly offer to God on our own and God rewards us because we're not forced to it. In purgatory we will be forced. But if we do so willingly you might say he cuts our debt way down. And so we can easily by say ex uh, indulgences that we will be studying later on remove the punishment of the sins forgiven more quickly through the merits of Christ. All comes from the merits of Christ. And the church grants indulgences to take of the merits of Christ and apply them against the debt you owe for the restoration of the sins forgiven through the re remedy uh, that otherwise through prayer, good works, and fastings that you will otherwise have to do. We borrow them from Christ. It's like a um, bonus that we have available to us through the indulgences that take away the punishments due to sins otherwise suffered in purgatory. The doctrine of purgatory is eminently consoling to the human heart. It consoles us when our loved ones die. Purgatory is a bond of union, making us realize that death is not an eternal separation for the just, but only a loss of their bodily presence. So we think of our parents as if they're still 
alive or at least uh, existing. And though separated bodily from them, we love them and talk to them, pray for them, and ask their prayers in turn. They're living realities in our faith. The doctrine of the existence of is the doctrine of the existence of purgatory reasonable? How do we know purgatory exists? Well, we're told this, but does it go against our reason? The doctrine of the existence of purgatory is not only reasonable, but its negation, its denial, is eminently contrary to reason. It is taught in Holy Scripture and has been taught by the Church from the very beginning. The doctrine of a middle state of purgatory or purgation is taught in the Old Testament and was firmly believed in by the Hebrews. After a battle, Judas Maccabeus ordered prayers and sacrifices offered for his slain comrades. Quote, he, Maccabeus, having levied a sum of 12,000 silver pieces, sent to Jerusalem to have sacrifices made for the guilt of their dead companions. This uh, Was not this well done and piously? Here was a man who kept the resurrection ever in mind. He had done fondly and foolishly indeed um, uh, to pray for the dead if these might rise no more that once fallen, uh, that once were fallen, and these had made a godly end, could he doubt a rich recompense awaiting them? A holy and wholesome thought, it, it is quoted, is it, it is to pray for the dead for their guilt's undoing. This is in the second book of Maccabees, which incidentally is not in the Hebrew Bible nor therefore in the Protestant Bible. But it is in the Catholic Bible. It is among the uh, books uh, inspired by God. And this uh, is the source of our uh, teaching on um, purgatory, that it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead. And, of course, if they're in hell, they can't be prayed for. If they're in heaven, there's no need. So if we pray for the dead, it's because they're in a middle state called purgatory. When our Lord came on earth, he purified the Jewish church of all these human changes that with the years had crept into its usages and beliefs. But he never reproved anyone for belief in a middle state of purgation or prayers for the dead. On the contrary, Christ more than once implied the existence of purgatory. He said, And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this world or in the world to come. When our Lord said that his sin will not be forgiven in the next life, he left us to conclude that some sins will thus be forgiven. But in the next life, sins cannot be forgiven in heaven. There shall not enter into it anything defiled. Neither can sins be forgiven in hell. For out of hell there is no redemption. They must therefore be forgiven in the middle state called purgatory. Belief in the existence of purgatory is a continuous and solemn teaching of the church. From St. Paul, the early fathers, the doctors of the church, on through the ages, the church has taught the existence of purgatory and the correlated doctrine of the usefulness of praying for the dead. From the beginning, Christians prayed for the dead at the holy sacrifice of the Mass. The oldest books used at Mass contained prayers for the dead. 
Incidentally, this erosion, uh, this melting away of this doctrine is found even in the new ordination ceremony uh, of the priests. There is no talk of offering sacrifice for the living and the dead. It's not that it's denied, but it's not taught. And it's not even in the ordination ceremony as it once was to offer mass or sacrifice for the living and the dead. It's omitted. The doctrine of purgatory was given solemn definition by the Council of Trent as follows, quote, There is a purgatory, and the souls there detained are assisted by the suffrages, or the offerings, of the faithful, but especially by the most acceptable sacrifice of the altar. This dogmatic definition contains three points of faith that all Catholics are compelled to believe. First, that there is a purgatory. Second, that after death, souls suffer therefore their sins. Third, that the living can extend assistance to such souls. Now, we can't make this up. This is a reality that we learn and we exercise in practice. Reason demands belief in the existence of purgatory. If a man dies with some slight stain on his soul, a sin of impatience or an idle word, is he fit to enter heaven? God's sanctity, infinite sanctity, forbids it. There shall not enter it into it anything defiled, in the words of the Apocalypse. Nothing defiled shall enter heaven. But must such a soul be considered uh, consigned to hell? God's mercy and justice forbid it. Therefore, reason concludes the existence of a middle and temporary state of expiation where the soul is cleansed from all stain of sin before it can be admitted into the perfect holiness and bliss of heaven. Quote, Amen, I say to you, thou wilt not come out from it until thou hast paid the last penny. Finally, among nearly all peoples, there has persisted the belief that souls must undergo some sort of purification after death. This would point to the doctrine of purgatory. The Greek story, ancient Greeks, uh, of Prometheus implies a state of purgation. The Egyptians and others believed in the transmigration of souls. Legends and myths of all nations, as well as burial customs, indicate belief in the possibility of helping the dead. The pyramids contain the relics of these mummies and their furniture and things that they used in life to assist them in the afterlife. So we see that this is part of the heritage of civilization, let alone the Catholic Church. Now, what about souls in purgatory? What pains do the souls in purgatory suffer? The souls in purgatory suffer from a great longing to be united to God and from other great pains. This longing is the greatest suffering. Now, imagine in our lives with our bodies as hindrances, we are tired, we go to sleep, we suffer pain, we're distracted by the many things around us. Uh, we do not have contact with God, even at our best efforts in prayer. But when the body is taken away and the soul is left in a pure state, it sees that clearly God is its goal. There are no distractions through bodily uh, uh, conditions. And the soul longs for God. It has always longed for God. Deep in the heart of every man, there is a longing for happiness, for some good, whether the good is true or not. But he has this impulse. And this is that push to God himself. 
though he may see the goodness of different things around him as substitutes for the real final good that is in God. But in purgatory, the souls suffer great longing for God. Remember, they're in the state of grace, their faith is intact, their hope, and their love, but it is hindered by the remaining penalties to be taken away before they can reach God and see him face to face in the beatific vision. Their chief pain, therefore, is the deprivation of the beatific vision. Now imagine in hell the frustration of this longing, this urging that can never be satisfied. Total misery. Total frustration. And this has to be the greatest pain in hell as well. But their chief pain is the deprivation of the beatific vision, the vision of God in the glory of heaven. This temporary deprivation is a most severe punishment because the poor souls already have a full knowledge of what they are missing. They know now what it was they were seeking for, this mystery of life. As the hind or the deer longs for the running waters, the deer out in the forest was looking for something to drink, and if it's thirsty, it's searching for this running stream of water. As the hind longs for the running waters, so my soul longs for you, O God. A thirst is my soul for God, the living God. When shall I go and behold the face of God? This is Psalm 4, beautiful psalms that you should read and find this sense of presence of God and the soul in his relationship to God. Beautiful 150 psalms, some more favored than others. Learn to find them and read them and relish them. The general tradition of the church is that they also suffer acutely in other ways. St. Augustine believes that the sufferings of the poor souls are greater than anything that man can suffer in this life. St. Thomas believes the least pain there is greater than the greatest on earth. So it is something to truly want to avoid at all costs. The greatness and the duration of a soul's suffering and purgatory vary according to the gravity of the sins committed. One who has lived a long life of sin but is saved from hell only by a deathbed repentance will stay in the purging fires of purgatory longer and suffer there more intensely than a child who has committed only the venial sins of an ordinary child. That some souls stay long in purgatory is implied by the fact that the church puts no limit to the offering of masses for the dead. Some foundations have been going on for centuries, offering for the repose of certain souls, the holy sacrifice of the mass. St. Augustine believes that those who stay longest in purgatory, who have loved the goods of earth more, some saints have held that certain holy souls in purgatory suffer no pain except their exclusion from the vision of God. Practically all are agreed that in purgatory the souls suffer most in those things in which they sinned most. As the imitation of Christ says, In what things a man hath most sinned, in those things shall he be most grievously tormented. So be careful what you ask for, what you seek for. Maybe these will be your burdens and sufferings. The poor souls, however, have much to console them. They are certain of salvation and the love of God. They are free from temptation. They cannot commit the slightest sin, even of impatience. They have no worry, anxiety, or distress of mind, for they are sure of deliverance. 
They are comforted by the prayers of the angels and saints and of the people on earth. Will all the souls in purgatory go to heaven? The answer is yes. All the souls in purgatory will go to heaven someday. They will stay in purgatory as long as they have not atoned for their sins, however. The poor souls cannot help themselves, for their time of meriting was ended at their death. They cannot therefore merit anything to satisfy for their sins. This is why we who can still merit by our good works should give some of them to as suffrage for the poor souls so that they may soon be delivered from their prison. We have the special obligation of helping with our prayers and sacrifices the souls of our dead relatives, friends, and benefactors. Although they cannot merit anything for themselves, the poor souls intercede for us. They can pray for us with their prayers to God. Thus, if we help them... They repay us by their intercession. So a devotion to the holy souls is a very good investment for your own deliverance. In what ways can we help the poor souls in purgatory? We can help the poor souls in, in purgatory by masses, by prayers, and by other good works. Masses. The holy sacrifice is the greatest help we can offer because its effect depends on itself and not on the piety of the priest who says it. Remember, the priest stands in the place of Christ. It is not he, but Christ, who offers this Mass with and through the priest. So if he's in a state of sin, the Mass is still valid. And the merits of the Mass do not depend upon the state of the soul of the priest. Wherever possible, Gregorian Masses should be offered where it's possible. That's 30 consecutive days of Masses for this particular person in purgatory. So these consist of 30 Masses celebrated on consecutive days for some deceased person. The difficulty is that if you break the 30 days, you have to start all over again with day number one until 30 consecutive days are completed. And so it's very rare to be able to have this kind of offering made of the Gregorian Masses. If we cannot have a Mass said, we can at least attend Mass and receive Holy Communion for our dear departed. A Mass has infinite merit, for it is the sacrifice of our Lord himself. It will surely avail our dead to offer for them God the Son himself in Holy Mass. Then secondly, prayers. We should pray with devotion for the poor souls. God does not regard the length of the prayer or the words so much as the love in the heart of the one who prays. And this is true of holy souls. Their prayers are more powerful. Uh, they don't have to pray long prayers, but the very fact they pray with that devotion and love that they have, that makes their prayer worthy. And so we should try to strive for a holiness of life that our prayers will have a greater power and effect. There are special prayers enriched with indulgences applicable to the souls in purgatory. And thirdly, almsgiving. No pompous funeral or profusion of flowers is of any avail for the poor souls in purgatory. As St. John Chrysostom says, not by weeping, but by prayer and almsgiving are the dead relieved. It is better to give to charity the money spent on idle and worthy worldly show, which cannot help the poor souls. Instead of sending costly wreaths to the family of a dead friend, it is an excellent custom instead to have masses offered for this soul. And then fourthly, the heroic act of charity. By this act, a person surrenders in behalf of the souls in purgatory all the satisfaction made to God by his good works, including 
whatever satisfaction he uh, may be offered for him by others during his life and after. That means giving everything away of your spiritual benefits. Now, you cannot lose everything because God reserves your merits for you. But you can share these by giving them in an heroic act, letting God take care of where they end in this surrender. Those who make the act may gain a plenary indulgence applicable only to the dead each day that they receive Holy Communion. If they have made their confession and visited a church or public oratory and prayed for the intentions of the Holy Father. Secondly, on Mondays, if they attend Mass in supplication for the faithful departed and fulfill the usual conditions, which we'll talk about when we come to indulgences. For making the heroic act of charity, the following prayer is suggested, quote, O my God, I voluntarily offer to thee through the mediation of Mary all the works of satisfaction that I may make in this life as well as all suffrages which may be offered for me after my death in behalf of the poor souls in purgatory, placing myself entirely at thy mercy. Now that's a heroic act indeed. And finally, we should not, however, rely too much on the prayers and sacrifices that our relatives may offer for us after our death. Even granting that they will remember us often and fervently in prayers, it is nevertheless true that works offered in suffrages for souls avail them only to a limited extent. Now, it's only in this life that we can merit. Those who have gone beyond this life, we can only offer to God our prayers, asking that he apply these merits to the souls, because there is no guarantee that we can actually achieve what we wish in our prayers to be accomplished, since they are separated from us. And so it's only through God's mercy that these prayers are applied. And if we are prayed for in purgatory, sometimes that's limited. And so we cannot rely that others will relieve us from the pains by their prayers on earth. God gives more value to a little voluntary penance done here on earth than to disciplines offered for that soul after death. So there is a little buffer then of uncertainty as to how much it comes across to the holy souls. One mass devoutly heard during life is worth more than a great sum left for the celebration of a hundred masses after death. So you see how precious it is to make good use of your time on earth where you can still merit for yourself and for others. So don't waste your life in idle pursuits, but apply yourself to the things that will be for your eternal glory forever in heaven. And as this doctrine of purgatory is no longer being taught, is being ignored, is being put in as a museum piece in the treasury of the church's past history, we know that it's a good investment for us to pray for the holy souls now so that if no one prays for us after we're gone, at least the holy souls in heaven will remember us when we arrive in purgatory. So this is the doctrine of purgatory being ignored, uh, no longer taught, melting away, probably will disappear in the theology of the new church, but we will retain it and observe it and benefit from it, both in giving and receiving of these suffrages for the holy souls in purgatory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen.